Angie has made it easier than ever to connect with skilled professionals to get all your jobs projects done well. If you own a home, you know how much work it can take, whether it's everyday maintenance and repairs or making dream projects a reality. It can be hard just to know where to start, but now all you need to do is Angie that and find a skilled local pro who will deliver the quality and expertise you need. Angie has over 20 years of home service experience, and they've combined it with new tools to simplify the whole process. Bring them your project online or with the Angie app, answer a few questions, and Angie can handle the rest from start to finish or help you compare quotes from multiple pros and connect instantly, which means you can take care of just about any home project in just a few taps. Because when it comes to getting the most out of your home, you can do this when you Angie that. Download the free Angie mobile app today or visit Angie.com. That's A-N-G-I dot com. Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is Plush Care. Plush Care is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. The following program is a production of Chilling Entertainment and the creative team at Chilling Tales for Dark Nights and a proud member of the Simply Scary Podcast Network. Visit simplyscarypodcast.com to learn more about this and our other weekly storytelling programs and become a patron today to show your support and get instant access to our extensive archive of downloadable ad-free tales of terror. Thank you for listening and enjoy the show. It's time to turn off the lights and turn on the dark. Good evening, listener. You're listening to Chilling Tales for Dark Nights. On tonight's program, we invite you to leave behind your safe reality and descend with us into the frightening depths of the most terrifying imaginations with audio adaptations of three rounds of frightening fiction about damnable dreams, sinister side effects, and insidious insomnia. Tonight, I'll be once again filling in for Steve Taylor, and I'll be your guide as we traverse the dimly lit corridors of your darkest dreams. I'm Jason Hill, host of the Horror Hill podcast now in its third season, available on Spotify, Stitcher, Apple Podcasts, and wherever podcasts can be found. If you can't get enough of the macabre, head on over to my neck of the woods after today's show. Joining us tonight to help bring the frightening fiction of Richard Saxon, Andy Levy, and Micah Edwards to life are voice talents Lady McCreepsta, Milo Reed, and Bryn Seacard. 
All of tonight's performers are contestants in Chilling Tales for Dark Knight's fifth annual Evil Idol Horror Voice Acting Competition. If you enjoy their performances tonight, visit our YouTube channel and vote on theirs and the other entries in the competition. The first round is on now, and there's plenty more to come to send shivers down your spine, all spooky season long. So check out our channel and join in the deliciously dark fun yet to come. Again, you can find Chilling Tales for Dark Nights and the Evil Idol competition on YouTube. Just search Chilling Tales for Dark Nights YouTube on any search engine, or visit ChillingTalesForDarkNights.com and click the Evil Idol link on the navigation to see a current roster, contestant profiles, and links to all of the performances thus far. We and the candidates appreciate your support. Now, get your ticket ready. Take your seat in our theater of the minds. Embrace yourself. It's time to turn off the lights and turn on the dark. Our first tale tonight was written by Richard Saxon and is performed by Evil Idol 2020 contestant number 23, Lady McCreepsta. In it, a young woman does her best to get to the bottom of the secrets behind a little girl's dreams, and why every time she has them, strange things happen. Without further ado, I present to you, When Little Sally Falls Asleep. There's an orphanage situated in northern Pennsylvania, in a small town so isolated from the rest of the world that it might as well not exist. Why in God's name anyone decided to put Dawson's home for special children here, I'll never know. But without any other opportunities in life, I'm stuck here until the day I draw my last breath. Don't get me wrong, now that I've been here for well over a decade, I'd never leave. If I can give even a single one of the children a better future in life, this pain will have been well worth it. But the kids they send up here aren't exactly ordinary. They're the ones abandoned on our doorstep, left behind by their families without anyone to care for them. They usually move from orphanage to orphanage, acting in ways their caretakers just can't understand. It's not like they're bad kids, but rather odd. It's a fickle thing to describe beings that don't abide by the laws of science and physics. To most, these kids might sound like mythical beings, or just deluded stories told by someone suffering from mental illness. Honestly, that was my first impression as well. But then they showed me Laura, the girl that never aged. She'd been ten for generations, but even her mind never matured, because her memory kept getting wiped out on her birthday, leaving her in a perpetual cycle that never ended. Even she wasn't enough to convince me. Next, 
they showed me Alexander. He was a boy without a face, born flawless, skin replacing each feature of his head. How he could breathe, or how he navigated the house without bumping into each and every wall, was an amazing feat. It was as if he had eyes, a nose, and a mouth, but he couldn't talk. By the time I arrived, he'd already been there for three years, unable to effectively communicate with anyone. Then there were less severe cases, like Daniel. He looked and acted like a normal child, but whenever he felt ill, every single person in the orphanage got infected with the exact same ailment, even if it wasn't infectious. Or James, who just spoke a language no one had ever heard of before, incapable of learning anything in English. Not a single one of them were evil. And they sure as hell weren't the monsters I'd been led to believe. They were just victims of various curses thrust upon them by an uncaring universe. I wanted so desperately to help them, to give them a chance at life, but for each year that passed, they kept dying, either from their own curse or that of others. Those that fell to an early death were quickly replaced by new, abandoned children. After my first year at Dawson's home, I wanted to leave with every fibre of my being, I'd tried too hard to help the children, but I just couldn't. Even though I didn't have enough money for a bus ticket, it had all gone to helping the kids. Still, I needed to get out, to find a new life before I turned suicidal. But then, I met little Sally. She was the most wonderful girl, a perfect little child that just happened to wander onto our doorstep. I was the one to find her, standing outside the orphanage in dirty clothes after having wandered the streets for days. Without hesitation, I brought her inside, feeding her and giving her a fresh set of clothes. She was only six, but she was so extraordinarily thankful, polite and intelligent beyond her years. As I put a bowl of hot stew in front of her, she just stared down at it, waiting for permission to start eating. My heart immediately broke once I noticed the hunger in her eyes, but she just sat idly by, waiting for me to tell her it was alright. Once I gave her the go-ahead, she basically inhaled the bowl, at which point I gave her a second serving. I tried to figure out her name, but she couldn't remember. All she knew was that her parents had called her Little Sally, but where they'd gone, she didn't understand. After she'd finished eating, she just started talking. She never mentioned what happened to her before we found her, but rather about her favourite animals, the climbing tree in her backyard, and the playground near her school. I did my best to decipher the clues, but... At her young age, she didn't give me much to go on. 
it was starting to dawn on me that whoever she belonged to, they might not want her. When I tried to ask about her parents again, she fell silent. She just refused to talk about them, but based on the bruises and malnourished form, we suspected abuse. Despite all that, she was the perfect child, and though we couldn't quite figure out what had happened to her, we were happy to have her by our side. On top of it all, I almost let myself believe she wasn't cursed with strange abilities. At least, until the first night she spent at Dawson's. We always give the newcomers a separate room for the first night, to adjust them to their new settings. Sally was no exception, and we fully intended on integrating her into our large family once morning rolled on. She just needed time. As day gave way to night, I led her to her temporary room. The walls inside were filled with drawings from the previous children, each creating their own piece of art on their first day at our place. I explained to Sally that she'd be allowed to draw anything that came to her mind, a useful exercise for both of us, to figure out how her mind worked, but also one to help her relax. She seemed to like that idea, and with that, I left her alone for the night. That night, I felt a modicum of happiness for the first time in months. I felt like I'd finally have the chance to help someone, to bring them into the real world, a task beyond just keeping them alive. But, despite my enthusiasm for our new family member, sleep would not grant me the rest I needed. My dreams quickly turned to nightmares, filled with worry and uncertain pictures of death. I knew the images I saw weren't real, leaving me with a hint of lucidity, yet I could not wake until the alarm finally jolted me back to reality. Exhausted, I went to check on Sally, to see how she'd fared during her first night. When I opened the door, I was greeted by a full new wall covered in paper. In the span of the single night, she'd produced just under a hundred new drawings, and they weren't bad either. Most of them were scenic drawings of the woods, always taking place during the sunset. Sally, did you do all of this? I asked in shock. She nodded and gave me a gentle smile. Yeah, I can't sleep. It was an odd answer, because she didn't look tired. She was as fresh as she'd been the night before. I sat down next to her, as she went onto her next drawing of a princess riding a dragon over the treetops. You like trees, huh? I asked, not sure what to say. Mm-hmm, she agreed enthusiastically. Then I turned my questions back at her odd lack of rest. Was something wrong with the room? Was that why you couldn't sleep? No, I just can't sleep very much. 
What do you mean? I don't know. When I sleep, I have really bad dreams. They're even badder than the dreams you had. I was taken aback by her last statement. My dreams? She put her colouring pencils down on the ground and looked up at me. Her eyes pierced me, and I could sense a hint of pity in them. You were scared. I saw it. How do you know I had bad dreams? I always see other people's dreams, but only the bad ones. Then, when I sleep, I have them too. Nightmares? She nodded. That's the day we realized just how special Sally truly was. She was the girl that almost never slept, which meant it wasn't a coincidence that she ended up on our doorstep. She was an outcast, abandoned, like all the other children. Though her curse was minute in comparison to many others, rather than help her deal with the curse, I wanted to teach her to embrace it, to be proud of who she was. That was a lesson I always tried to teach the others, to accept themselves, or at least the things they didn't choose to be born with. I gave her the talk about her being special like the other children, which seemed to improve her mood. She was happy, as if she wasn't alone for the first time in her whole life. She hugged me, and together we went to introduce her to the other kids. In the end, Sally didn't need a bed to sleep on, as she could just stay awake. Still, we wanted to give her a place that belonged to her, among the other kids. They all embraced her with open arms and went on to show her the different places in the building. She quickly became one of us. Every now and then, she'd come running to me when the other kids were having nightmares. They scared her, but she was always more concerned about them. She wanted me to help comfort them, to let them know they weren't alone in their bad dreams. It became a part of my daily routine, one I came to appreciate. Sally would let me know about the others' nightmares and I'd come to the rescue. Things were going well, but as all things eventually must, the good times came to an end. About one year after Sally came to us, I found her unconscious on the ground. It was the first time I'd seen her so still, as if all her energy had left her tiny body and it terrified me beyond words. She didn't seem wounded or anything, and she was definitely breathing, albeit a tad erratically. In a way, it looked as if she was dreaming, running away from something terrible. I picked her up in my arms and carried her to the nursing station as we awaited a doctor. The orphanage was too far out in the countryside for an ambulance to reach us, which meant we didn't have much in terms of help apart from the single local doctor. Once I put her safely down in bed, she started wriggling around and mumbled something about Daniel needing help. As she spoke those words, 
I heard multiple horrified screams emerging from the playroom. The staff rushed towards the screen to find Daniel getting fused with the wall. His entire body had gotten entangled in the concrete surrounding him and we could hear his bones crack under the immense weight. He screamed in agony, but trying to pull him out proved a futile task. All we could do was stare as he sank deeper into the wall. The sledgehammer! I yelled as I held onto his arm. One of the staff ran out of the room, heading towards the basement where the tools were kept. All the while, Daniel's bones kept cracking and his organs were turning into mush within the concrete. By the time they brought the sledgehammer back, his chest had been destroyed, making it impossible for him to breathe. He died inside that wall, in agony, and never understanding why his life had to end. It wasn't until we dug his body out that we saw the true extent of the damage. He had become a mangled bag of meat without the faintest hope of survival, and none of us understood what had just happened. We were just lucky the damage hadn't affected us in the same way his diseases had. As they cleaned up the blood and crushed chunks of flesh, I went to check on Sally, who had woken up again. She was crying. I'm sorry, I'm sorry, I didn't mean to fall asleep, I killed Daniel, she cried. I tried to comfort her, but she wouldn't have it. It wasn't your fault, Sally, I said, though I didn't fully believe it. I saw the wall smash him, I dreamed it. You dreamed about Daniel? I asked. She nodded. What did you see? Then she went on to explain the dream in excruciating detail, each matching the manner of Daniel's death. And that was it. The innocent girl I'd known for the past year was gone, and the true nature of her curse had been revealed. I gave her a hug and told her that it wasn't her fault. Of course, I meant it because she couldn't control her dreams. Still, It had been her. We decided not to tell the other kids about what had happened, but even so, they realized something about Sally had changed. Her previous happy persona had vanished, only to be replaced by something colder, more distant and broken. The next year was spent mostly trying to figure out how Sally's ability worked, a difficult task for someone who we'd only seen sleep a single time. During that time, I also tried to pry deeper into her past. It took a while, but with the little details she shared, I could sort of create a picture of what had happened prior to her arrival at our home. She'd been sitting in the back seat of her parents' car as she suddenly drifted off. Then, she simply dreamed that her parents never existed. And with that, she woke up alone on the side of the road in the middle of nowhere. 
I don't want to fall asleep, but it happens anyway, Sally would say. It would take another year before she started hanging out with the other children again. It was around the time of her eighth birthday, and she was playing hide-and-seek with Alexander. He was oddly good at the game, at least for a kid with no face, but on the sixth or so round, Sally never came to look for him. Once it became apparent that Alex would never be found, he decided to go look for Sally himself only to find her fast asleep in the corner he'd left her. As we figured out what had happened, we started escorting the children into the bomb shelter in the basement, figuring we should get everyone as far away from Sally as possible. Then, as we shut the door, it simply vanished from existence, replaced by a concrete wall that wouldn't yield We were trapped in the dim basement with no way out. Then, the lights went out as well, and we were plunged into darkness. There was a flashlight in one of the closets, but it hardly helped illuminate the room. It was simply too old and the batteries were close to death. We were all standing around in horrified silence, and I was just praying that Sally would wake up before someone died. After a few minutes, the ground started feeling wet. I shined the light down at the ground, only to realize it had turned a crimson red. The air reeked of metal and I quickly figured out that we were all standing in a pool of blood that was rising rapidly. The screams the kids let out were heartbreaking, but they were muffled by the thick concrete walls around us meaning no one on the outside could hear us. Within minutes, it swallowed us. We tried to swim, but moving around in such thick liquid proved a complicated challenge. Once the blood hit the ceiling, we were all pulled under, unable to breathe. I held my breath for as long as I could, trying to find the children, but my eyes were blinded by the blood. I must have lasted two minutes before my body gave in, and I just inhaled a lungful of blood, when the entire basement reverted back to its native state, meaning that Sally had finally awoken from her slumber. The blood vanished in the blink of an eye, and the door reappeared. Once I had regained my senses, I looked around at the kids and staff. Most were fine, coughing up chunks of partially coagulated blood, but James wasn't breathing. I rushed to his side, still struggling to catch my own breath. Then I started CPR. The others cried as I pushed his chest in, desperately trying to fill my lungs with enough air for the young boy. I felt his ribs crack beneath my hands, but I had to keep going. On the third set, he finally coughed up the blood and started breathing on his own. Sally was devastated. But despite the nightmare-inducing event, not a single person had died. That time, though, we couldn't keep Sally's curse a secret. The children put two and two together, 
and Sally once again became an outcast, even among her own friends. I decided then that the best way to help Sally would be to help her control her dreams. Working on inducing lucid dreaming, reality checks that could help her snap back to reality, and for a few years, it actually worked. Each time Sally would fall asleep, she'd realize what was going on and wake herself up. But on the rare occasion that it wouldn't work, people had a tendency to get seriously wounded. On her 10th birthday, Sally dreamed that the building was on fire. Luckily, everyone got out in time, mostly suffering light burns and some smoke inhalation. Once she woke up, the building was fine, as if the fire had never happened. Then, a few months later, Sally fell asleep twice in the same day. The first incident took place in the morning during breakfast. She'd created a new entity that she referred to as Mr. Sin. To us, he appeared as a normal, middle-aged man in a suit. He sat down with us in the dining hall and made casual conversation. It wasn't until someone asked about the briefcase that the horrors began. It was filled to the brim with human skin. He said he needed it for his home and tried convincing the children to come observe his room of flesh. Once he realized we weren't letting that happen, he just got up and left. Sally woke up from that dream relatively quickly, but she'd fallen asleep again that very afternoon. That time, we just caught a glimpse of Mr. Sin walking down the hallway, blood dripping from his briefcase. He'd come from the kitchen, where we found Mrs. Ingridson lying on the floor. The entirety of her skin was missing, stripped from the underlying flesh. She was still writhing around in pain when we found her, but her body wouldn't last long. Before we could even try to get help, she died from shock. That was just the beginning of our living nightmare, because as Sally hit puberty, her slumber increased drastically in frequency. It went from being a once-a-year occurrence to two, then three. Before she even hit 14, her dreams had become a bi-monthly occurrence. Ones that were wounding or even killing both staff and the children. She knew it herself, that her dreams would inevitably end up killing everyone she loved, and we couldn't deny that fact. But... Running away wouldn't stop the dreams, neither would locking her up. She tried using different drugs to keep herself awake, but her efforts were all fruitless. Nothing could keep her awake for long. Eventually, I was hit with the only possible solution available. The only thing that could end Sally's hail of nightmares was death itself. 
It wasn't like the thought hadn't struck me before, but I'd forced it so deep into the darkest corner of my mind that I'd never truly actually considered it. To save everyone else, we had to kill Sally. Since I was the closest to her, I was chosen to do the deed. Our doctor aided me in choosing the most humane way of ending her life. He gave me an injection, I assumed held morphine, and promised me it would be a painless death. With that, I could lull her into an eternal slumber. I chose a Saturday to end her life. She'd asked me to take her out of town for the day, just the two of us, to her favourite hiking spot in the countryside. It was a beautiful place, filled with endless fields only bordered by the vast forests. I brought a picnic basket, full of her favourite treats. A final meal to end her existence among us. After we'd eaten, I told her what needed to be done. I didn't want it to be a surprise, and I needed her to know that it wasn't her fault. She didn't even seem surprised. In fact, she almost seemed relieved that no one else would suffer as a result of her curse. That's why she asked me to take her out to the fields, because she wanted one final moment of happiness to just pretend that everything would be fine. She'd considered ending her own life on numerous occasions, but couldn't find the strength to do it. We sat there for hours and just talked, made plans for a future she'd never have, and joked about the good memories that still lingered from her past. I'm sorry, she mumbled. It wasn't your fault, Sally. Your dreams might leak into reality, but it wasn't your choice. Life is not a balanced scale between good and evil. It's just a chaotic mess filled with random events. You just got the short end of the stick, but it doesn't make you any less of a person. I just wish I knew why. What was the meaning of all this pain? I don't know. With these words, Sally fell asleep on my shoulder. I pulled out the syringe, ready to strike before her nightmares could end me. Tears were welling up in my eyes and my hands trembled as I pointed it at her neck. But, despite her slumber, the world around me didn't change. There were no horrors pouring out from her unconscious mind or any evil presence in the vicinity. That's when I realized that Sally hadn't just fallen asleep. She'd actually stopped breathing. I let her down to the ground easily and checked her pulse. She was dead. She'd taken her last breath before passing over to the other side, just like that. 
Whether she dreamed about her own demise or if it was a random stroke that finally ended her, I'll never know. I gave her a funeral in the forest as she requested. Buried her body deep underground so she could rest peacefully among the trees. I failed Sally, like I failed so many of the children at that orphanage before. But I keep trying, because if I save just one single child, it will all have been worth it. Angie has made it easier than ever to connect with skilled professionals to get all your jobs projects done well. If you own a home, you know how much work it can take, whether it's everyday maintenance and repairs or making dream projects a reality. It can be hard just to know where to start, but now all you need to do is Angie that and find a skilled local pro who will deliver the quality and expertise you need. Angie has over 20 years of home service experience and they've combined it with new tools to simplify the whole process. Bring them your project online or with the Angie app, answer a few questions, and Angie can handle the rest from start to finish or help you compare quotes from multiple pros and connect instantly, which means you can take care of just about any home project in just a few taps. Because when it comes to getting the most out of your home, you can do this when you Angie that. Download the free Angie mobile app today or visit Angie.com. That's A-N-G-I dot com. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. I hope you enjoyed When Little Sally Falls Asleep, as written by Richard Saxon and performed by Evil Idol 2020 contestant number 23, Lady McCreepstar. Up next, we've got a second sinister story for you, written by Andy Levy and performed by Evil Idol 2020 contestant number 32, Milo Reed. In it, a gentleman goes to great lengths to save someone close to him, and the price for the cure is measured in something far more insidious than dollars. Without further ado, I present to you, My Girlfriend is a Cannibal. A horrible curse befell my girlfriend, and now she can only eat human meat, and I'm her personal butcher. It all started two years ago, when my girlfriend became very ill and struggled to eat. Anything she did eat would usually come back up a few minutes later. At first, the doctors weren't sure what was wrong with her, theorizing it may be a stomach ulcer, but after her health continued to deteriorate, further tests revealed that she wasn't suffering from stomach ulcers, but instead, stomach cancer. This news shattered our world. Never in a million years could we have guessed it would be cancer. Elaine was in her mid-twenties, and I know that doesn't make you immune, but it sure makes you feel that way. The cancer was caught pretty late, and neither of us had a lot of money, essentially living paycheck to paycheck, so 
our medical options weren't great. We live in Buffalo, meaning we were just 30 minutes too far south for good and affordable medical care. And with Elaine unable to work, I made the choice to take on a second job as a nightly garbage collector. Didn't pay great, but beggars can't be choosers. It was at this job, however, that I met Eli Carson. Eli was a wild dude. He was only 30, but looked easily as if he was in his mid-40s and had a shaved head with a singular rat's tail hanging out the back. His eyes were dark green, and his face had a long, thick scar going from his right eyebrow down across the bridge of his nose, right down to his left cheek. The craziest thing about him, though, is that he grew up in a cult, a sort of offshoot of the unification movement cult set up by the more eccentric members. He told me he'd been a member from birth and lived in a commune until he was 19, at which point he escaped. The stories he had from the cult made the night shift go by much quicker, but it was once I told him about Elaine's situation that the funny stories turned serious. Due to his cult links, Eli knew some pretty weird and out there people, and he put me on to someone who he said could cure Elaine 100%. Her name was Madame Arachnia. Eli described her as the craziest mix of genius and psycho he'd ever met. He said that she worshipped eldritch gods and that she believed H.P. Lovecraft was not a fiction writer, but instead a prophet. However, he promised me that no matter how insane her beliefs were, that nobody else was better equipped to help. I got shot one night while out on a date, and I was set to be on crutches for six months, but she had me walking in no time, he insisted, though I doubted the veracity of the claim. Elaine was quickly running out of options, however, and I couldn't live with myself if we didn't try everything we could. So what if it turned out to be a hoax? It wouldn't change anything about our current situation. Madame Arachnia worked out of a camp deep in a forest at Niagara Gorge. The camp was designed to look like a circus, including a big top tent. Fairy lights hung up all over the camp, connecting the multiple tents and teepees that were dispersed throughout. Up in the left corner, just beside the big top, was an animal pen that contained some sheep, goats, cows, and horses. Madame Arachnia's tent was situated at the back of the camp and guarded by two tall men dressed like jesters. However, instead of the usual colorful attire, they wore all black. They wore skull masks and vests made of bones, as well as coal-black jester's hats with little skull bells that jingled as they walked. Both men carried four black balloons and one white balloon. They led me into the tent, which unsurprisingly was illuminated by multiple fairy lights draped across the roof. There was a strong smell of burning sage and lavender incense, and the floor was covered in hay that crunched whenever someone took a step. I had assumed that Madame Arachnia would be an old lady covered in warts. I turned out to be very wrong. When she pulled down her shawl, she revealed a stunningly beautiful woman with a pale freckled face, bright yellow eyes, and a tattoo of a black widow spider around her right eye. The sides of her head were shaved, with the jet black hair on top done into a quiff, with a white streak dyed into it. On each of her fingers, she wore a golden covering coated with encrusted gems and she had the letters H and P tattooed on the backs of her left and right hands, respectively. Samuel, I'm guessing, she said while pulling off her shawl as I approached. Her amber eyes stared directly into mine, as if she was trying to peer into my soul. That's me, though most people call me Sam, I responded, while pulling out the wicker chair from under the table so that I could take a seat. Well, Sam, I understand your dear Elaine has been attacked by a horrible disease. 
she replied as she picked a small black satin sack off the floor and placed it on the table, its glass contents rattling around inside as she did. Yep, stomach cancer. We tried everything that we could afford, but nothing's worked. And I don't know how long she has left, I explained while biting my lip. I found it hard to discuss these matters with anyone without bursting into tears. Madam sat in silence with her fingers crossed for a few seconds to allow me to regain my composure. Once I did, she continued. Cancer is a horrible thing. To me, it is the greatest evil in our universe. It turns our body against us and kills us slowly from the inside, a truly reprehensible disease. People beg their god to cure them, but more often than not, neither their god nor their doctor can do anything for them. She replied as she put her hand into the sack and began to rummage around inside. However, the old ones would never allow a servant to die such a horrible death. After rummaging around for a bit, she eventually pulled out a glass vial with a cardboard cork at the top. The vial was full of a crimson substance that swirled around in the glass. Madame Arachnia placed the vial into my hand. Then with her hand, she closed mine over the vial. She held my hand in between both of hers and looked me in the eye again. I made this concoction especially for your Elaine. She should drink this as soon as possible and then rest. It'll clear her of all ailments and strengthen her stomach in no time. I'm not sure if it was her confidence or my desire to want her to be correct, or maybe a mix of both, but at that moment, I completely believed Madame Arachnia. This was going to work. Thank you so much. What do I owe you? I asked her as I pulled an envelope out of my jacket which contained $3,000, my entire savings. Oh, monetary gain means little to me. Elaine's return to health will be of use to my gods. Appeasing them means much more to me than any piece of paper assigned an arbitrary value, Madame Arachnia replied as she lifted her hand up and gestured for me to put the money away. There had been many red flags from my trip to the camp, but this should have been the biggest. Nobody does anything for free whether they take money or not. In some way, they expect to be rewarded for what they've done. At the time, however, I didn't think about that. I just thought Madame was some sort of saint, doing good deeds in the name of some misplaced belief in fictional gods. How wrong I turned out to be. The first four days after Elaine had taken the potion were no different than usual, and I started to believe we had fallen for a stupid hoax. I was angry at myself for falling for such an obviously fake cure. I was even angrier for having put Elaine through more stress, getting her hopes up again for nothing. On the fifth day, though, things changed for the better. Elaine woke up and seemed to be doing much better. The color had come back to her face, and she was full of energy. Her beautiful smile touched each of her rosy red cheeks in the morning when she woke me up to tell me how amazing she felt. I couldn't believe my eyes when I saw how great she looked. If it weren't for the weight loss, you wouldn't have believed that she was a cancer patient. However, the good feelings didn't last, as she immediately vomited when she ate some toast that I had made for her. We were both shocked when she threw up, and I could tell how much effort Elaine was putting in to stop herself from exploding into tears. It had seemed that we found a cure, but after she threw up, it became apparent it had only been a placebo. Except it wasn't. We decided to go to the hospital for a checkup, hoping that the potion may have fought back some of the cancer. Not enough to return Elaine's appetite, 
but enough to give her back some energy and to give us a fighting chance. However, when the test results came back, the doctors were dumbfounded. The cancer was completely gone. There was no trace of it at all. Her physicians couldn't believe their eyes. Elaine sat in silent shock upon hearing the news, only coming out of it when I threw my arms over her. I'm alive, she said, before beginning to cry as I held her tight in my arms. The doctors informed us that Elaine throwing up while eating was most likely just her body getting used to regular food again, and that things would soon return to normal. They told us to ensure that she only ate small portions and soup for the time being, which is all she could usually stomach when she was sick. However, over the next few days, she couldn't even stomach that. Four days had passed since she got the all clear, and she couldn't even eat some toast and soup. The rest of her body had been cured, but it seemed like her stomach had deteriorated. I decided I needed to meet with Madame Arachnia again. If anyone had answers, it was her. I just wish the answers I received had been different. When I reached the camp, I was once again greeted by the creepy jesters who walked me into Madame's tent. I explained to her that the potion had worked, but that Elaine couldn't eat no matter what we tried. Her response to this took my own appetite away from me. Well, of course she can't eat. You aren't feeding her the right meat, she said as she placed some tarot cards face down on the table, keeping her eyes focused on them as she spoke to me. Well, you never told me that there was food she couldn't eat. What can she eat? I replied, expecting to get an answer like horse or rat. However, the answer was much, much worse. Humans, she replied as she lifted her head to finally look at me and grin. My heart sank into my stomach upon hearing this, and I began to sweat profusely before lashing out in anger. Don't joke with me! I screamed as I jumped up from my seat and pounded a closed fist against the table, causing the tarot cards to fly off and flutter to the floor. Both of the jesters took a step forward, preparing to attack me, but Madame ordered them to step back before beckoning for me to retake my seat. Sit down and relax, Sam. I am not joking. My potions aren't a miracle. They cure, but they need something in return. In this case, Elaine's stomach has been modified to fight off all infections and diseases, but in return, she can only eat her fellow humans. She explained as she reached her right hand out and called for one of the jesters, who then carried over a lunchbox and placed it on the table, opening it up to reveal a liver. This is a human liver. Take it home and cook it for about six minutes on each side, then serve it. It'll be the tastiest meal Elaine has ever had, and once she's had the taste for human meat, she'll never want to go back. Not that she has a choice, Arachnia said before starting to chuckle as she placed the top back on the box and slid it across the table to me. The anger I had felt before quadrupled as I sat there being mocked. However, I took a few deep breaths and composed myself knowing that Madame's two goons might not be held back by her a second time, if I lost it again. And how do I know this is a human liver? This could easily just be a liver from one of your animals. I want you to stop playing around with me and give me a proper answer. Stop this frustrating joke, please. I calmly replied as I sat back in my chair and crossed my arms. Madame didn't immediately respond. Instead, she turned her head to look at the jester to the left of her and nodded to him. Once she did... He walked away to the back of the tent, coming back a moment later with a plastic bag slung over his shoulder. 
He walked up to the table and dropped the bag directly onto it. The full weight of the bag hit the tabletop with a loud thud before a head rolled out from it. A human head. Once the head rolled out, I leaped from my seat and screamed before the jester put both hands on my shoulders and forced me back down into the chair, hoarsely ordering me to sit now. We don't do jokes around here, Samuel. If I say something, I mean it, Madame Arachnia said with a serious tone, though I was no longer looking at her. My eyes were transfixed on the detached head sitting on the table in front of me. The head looked to have belonged to an older man in either his forties or fifties, judging from his wrinkled face, long gray hair, and the bald spots dispersed throughout. His facial expression was one of immense pain, and his eyes had been gouged out. I started to wonder what this man had done to earn such a fate, but that mattered little to me. What did matter, however, was how dangerous Madame Arachnia was. My right leg twitched uncontrollably underneath the table as she spoke, fearing that I may face the same fate as this man. Now, take that lunchbox, leave this camp, and never dare return. The boys will see you out, Madame Arachnia said as the jesters approached me and lifted me out of the chair. One of them handed me the lunchbox before both walked me out of the camp and back to civilization. When I got home, I cooked the liver just as Madame had told me to, and just as she predicted, Elaine loved it. But more importantly, she was able to keep it down. I waited until the next day to see if she was able to keep it all down before sitting her down and explaining to her that she had consumed a man's liver. At first, she thought it was a joke, but once I assured her it wasn't, she understandably slapped me across the face and stormed off, leaving me alone with a deep red hand-shaped mark on my face. She didn't return until later that night, but when she did, she was much calmer than when she left. It was that night that we accepted we only had two choices going forward. We could either do what needed to be done, or allow Elaine to starve. The latter was never an option, and there was no plan B, so it was obvious that we would need to kill to keep Elaine alive. I said that I would do it, as I had gotten us into this mess. We are, or should I say were, both pretty non-violent people, so jumping straight into murdering people wasn't easy. We knew we couldn't just kill anyone, and so Elaine decided that we would choose certain people, people who deserve to die. So, that explains why I'm sitting in a parking lot across from a 24-hour gym at 1am, waiting for the right person to leave. The right person was Jack Werther, a 33-year-old fitness aficionado. He needed to keep himself in top shape to impress the ladies, but when I say ladies, I should really say girls. Young girls. Jack usually likes them between 13 and 16, and he was into some pretty weird stuff. I know this because Jack has been texting back and forth with Elaine for the last three weeks. He's been led to believe that she's a 14-year-old girl. I've done this a few times now, so you might assume I was getting used to it. But if I'm being honest, I dread doing this every time. I struggle to sleep for days once I notice that meat is running low. Thankfully, I don't have to do this too often. A whole human lasts quite a while, but not as long as you'd expect, since it's all Elaine can eat. Most of the body can be used, bar the head, hands, and feet, which she struggles to eat. She especially enjoys the eyes, which she blends up like a smoothie. I wish Elaine would have picked a weaker, less fitness-loving meal, but we take what we can get. And besides, it's hard to survive multiple shots to the head from a hammer 
no matter how strong and fit you are. I had to sit and wait for Jack for over two hours. During that time, my usual feelings of fear, anxiousness, and paranoia subsided as I tried to focus on staying awake. However, Jack eventually left the gym and briskly walked up the quiet, empty street and into the darkness. Once I saw him leave, I grabbed the hammer out of my bag and followed after him. Time for dinner. I hope you enjoyed My Girlfriend is a Cannibal, as written by Andy Levy and performed by Evil Idol 2020 contestant number 32, Milo Reed. Up next, we've got a third and final taste of the terrible for you, written by Micah Edwards and performed by Evil Idol 2020 contestant number 33, Bryn Secard. In it, a young woman seeks help to cope with a sleep-depriving malady. Unfortunately, she may soon find there is more to her condition than a trick of the mind. Without further ado, I present to you... The Traveler. Your hair smells nice. That was the first thing you said to me. Said. That's too weak a word, even. Whispered. Oozed. He oozed those words into my ear, an invasion as unwelcome as if he had stuck his actual tongue inside. My back was to him, so all I knew about him was what I could hear in his voice. It was male and unpleasant. Greasy. I shifted uncomfortably, but the train was full and there was nowhere to move to. Besides, he hadn't actually done anything. He hadn't put his hands on me, hadn't touched me. I decided that the best thing to do was to ignore him. I like the shine, he continued. I shuddered as if a drip of filthy water had fallen from the roof of the subway car and slid down my neck. You take good care of it. Very healthy. Very full. I like it. He'll like it. I looked around. No one else seemed to notice what he was saying. He was speaking quietly, but not whispering. So surely others could hear him. And people weren't doing the intentionally not looking thing when something isn't their problem and they don't want it to become theirs, so maybe I was just overreacting. Maybe this sounded like a normal conversation to everyone else? I don't know you, I said over my shoulder, in case anyone thought we were together. You will, he promised. You'll know me very well. I turned then to confront him and was surprised at what I saw. I'd expected some damaged derelict but the man behind me was tall, attractive, and well-groomed. His suit was tailored, his shoes were shined, his briefcase was crisp and professional. He looked like a TV image of a young lawyer. Only his eyes matched his voice. They leered from his face, lecherous and greasy. They roamed all over my body in exactly the way his hands hadn't and left me feeling just as disgusted. They seemed alien, a mismatch for the rest of him. I could have easily gone on a date with the rest of him, but I couldn't spend another second looking into those eyes. Except that that's exactly what I did. Something about them captured me, captivated me. I stared into his horrible, hungry eyes as if there was an explanation to be found in their murky depths. He continued to talk, the words lapping over my body like an infected tide, but I no longer heard them. 
I just felt their hideous touch and struggled to pull free from his eyes. I woke up still on the train, seated and confused. There was no sign of the man anywhere. It looked like most of the passengers had changed, and I didn't think that calling out, Did anyone see a man with me? was likely to get good results. I didn't remember sitting down or falling asleep. Was it possible that I'd dreamed the entire thing? With a groan, I realized I'd missed my stop. It was going to take at least another half an hour to get off, switch trains, and make my way back to my station. I'd been looking forward to the day being over, and now this creep had just extended it for me. If there even had been a creep. I had fallen asleep after all, and it's not like he did that to me. It might have all been my imagination. I sighed and edged through the crowd to the doors. Maybe I could have a relaxing evening tomorrow night. The whole trip back, I was certain that the sleazy lawyer was somehow following me. I scanned the crowd every time new passengers embarked, but he was never among them. When the train reached my stop, I hurried through the station, constantly checking around me in case he was loitering somewhere nearby, waiting for me to arrive. It was nonsensical, I knew. He had no way of even knowing who I was, let alone where I lived. His claim that I would know him well echoed around my head, though, sounding more threatening the more I thought about it. Was it a real threat? Should I call the police? These were the thoughts occupying my mind as I reached my building. The streets were dim in the encroaching night, and I hustled inside, letting out a long breath as I heard the door lock behind me. I let myself relax as the elevator slowly carried me up to my floor, my heart slowing back to normal as the numbers climbed. Inside my apartment, behind still more locks, the man on the train seemed far less of a threat. The idea of calling the police seemed silly now. He was a loser, a nobody, just an ordinary creep. The city was full of them. Everyone ran into them sometimes. Tonight had been my turn, that was all. I made some tea, ordered Chinese food delivery from a local place, and sat down on the couch to see if I could salvage the night. I was still flipping through the menus, deciding what to watch when the door buzzer sounded, startling me. Instantly, my thoughts leapt to the creepy man from the train. Had he followed me after all? Was he outside now? I thought about simply ignoring the door, but it buzzed again, longer this time, and I reluctantly rose from the couch to confront whoever was there. Yes? I said into the speaker. Food delivery, came the voice. I have your order here. The Chinese place. I felt like an idiot. Come on up. I buzzed him in. Seconds later, doubt set in. Hadn't it been awfully fast for the delivery to get here? He hadn't even said it was Chinese food. The voice was indistinct over the speaker. It could be the sleaze after all. I might have just let him into the building. Worse, he definitely knew what apartment I was in now. I mean, I wouldn't let him in, of course, but what if he forced the door? I looked around the room for something to defend myself with and settled on a knife from the kitchen. It was meant for slicing bread, but it was the longest knife I had and I wanted something that would keep distance between us. Soon enough, a knock came at the door. I started to move toward the peephole, then stopped myself. Would he be expecting that? I didn't want to play into his hands. Leave it outside the door, I called. What? The voice was muffled. It could have been anyone. The food. Leave it outside the door. I'll get it. Whatever, lady. I strained my ears listening for receding footsteps, but heard nothing. 
After a few minutes, I risked a look through the peephole. No one was there. The hallway looked empty. I undid the locks and opened the door cautiously. Sitting on the floor outside was a thin plastic bag stamped with, Have a nice day! Inside, my dinner was cooling in its little cardboard curtains. It really had just been the delivery man after all. I took one last glance up and down the hallway. Definitely empty. I was just being paranoid. <laughs> Still, I didn't put the knife away when I went back inside. It made me feel better to have it close by. I knew it was silly, but it also wasn't hurting anything, so I kept it out. I turned out the lights, settled in on the couch, opened up my food, and started up a movie. Full stomach, dim room, and comfortable seating worked their magic, and at some point I fell asleep, television still going. When I woke back up, everything was quiet. The movie was doing a slow zoom in on a figure laying down in a dark room. I struggled to figure out what this had to do with the plot, but I couldn't remember what had been going on. The camera edged closer, starting to pick out details. The figure was a woman, judging by the hair. She was sleeping on a couch. The table in front of her was strewn with takeout containers. The couch looked disturbingly familiar. Her hair was the same color as mine. Suddenly uncomfortable, I reached for the remote. Or tried to. My body wouldn't respond. My arms, legs, head were all frozen. I couldn't even blink. I could only stare at the television as the camera slowly zoomed in on my terrified eyes until finally it disappeared into them entirely and the screen went black. I sat up then, but not of my own volition. Something else was moving my body and I was simply being carried along, an unwilling passenger. I watched, trapped, behind my own eyes as I raised my arm and turned it back and forth. Good muscle tone, I heard myself say. My hands reached up and caressed my face, running fingers through my hair before sliding down my neck to explore my body. I felt violated by my own touch. My mind was shuddering, but my body couldn't even do that. Caden Dufort, I said. Are you listening? You don't have to fight me. Look up Caden Dufort. Get me to him, and this can all be over. I picked up the knife from the table and held it to my own midsection, just below the left side of my ribcage. Carefully, slowly, I drew the blade lightly across my skin, raising a bright flare of pain. Blood welled up, tiny drips escaping down my stomach. That's just in case you decide this was all a dream. Caden DeFort. Get to him and I'll leave you alone. My eyes closed then and my consciousness shut off along with my vision. The next time I awoke, it was morning. I was in my bed wearing my pajamas. My body moved and responded normally, although I couldn't remember why I thought it might not. A name danced on the tip of my tongue, but skittered away before I could speak it. A pain in my side as I sat up made me wince. I pressed my hand to my left side and felt something pressed up against my skin. I lifted my shirt to see a bandage along the bottom of my ribcage, dark red blood dotting it in a few places. Suddenly it all came back to me. The paralysis, the possession, the name Caden DeFort, 
Who was he? What did it mean? A quick internet search revealed a man by that name running for city council. I frowned, confused. What did an aspiring politician have to do with any of this? I closed the browser tab. Only I didn't. I meant to, but instead of hitting the X on my phone, I clicked on events. The top line told me that he held town halls every weekend, listing an address and time. I tapped my finger next to this several times. I didn't want to do any of that. I tried to move my hand to the X. My finger lingered for just a moment longer, as if to prove that it could main control if it wanted before finally moving toward the corner of the screen and closing the tab. With no idea how long I'd have control for this time, I had to make every second count. I tried not to think too hard about what I was doing in case I somehow tipped off whatever had seized control last night. I hurried out of the building and headed for the nearest hospital. The trip there was agony. I could feel eyes on me everywhere. I clung to the subway pole trying to keep the entire sparsely occupied car in my view. Most of the passengers avoided my gaze. I knew I must look crazy. Wasn't I, though? I thought I was possessed. That's the sort of thing crazy people believed. I told the admissions nurse that I was hearing voices. She handed me a pen and a clipboard of forms to fill out. Her nonchalance calmed me down somewhat. Clearly, she didn't think I was in immediate danger. She probably saw worse than this all the time. All I had to do was fill out the paperwork and they'd fix me up. I started to breathe more easily. The end was in sight. Help was almost here. As I turned in the completed forms, I grew nervous again. If I try to leave before the doctor sees me, please don't let me, I said to the nurse. I really need to see him. It won't be that long, she told me, sounding bored. Just have a seat and wait. The waiting room was warm. Although it was loud and the seat was uncomfortable, I nearly dozed off. When I realized this, I leapt to my feet and began pacing, determined not to cede control so easily. The nurse watched, but said nothing, and I knew she would not stop me if I walked out the door. My stomach was in knots by the time I was called in to see the doctor. Dr. Vogt was calm and reassuring. He nodded and took notes as I laid out everything that had happened. The paranoia, the uncertain memory, the loss of control. Hmm, he said when I finished, tapping his pen on his glasses. But you're fully in control now? I think so, but earlier with the phone, my hand... He nodded again. Yes, yes. But that was shortly after you woke up, correct? I think it may have been a hypnopompic hallucination. A residual dream, if you will. It's more common than you'd think. But Caden DeFort... I'd, I'd never heard of him before. Dr. Vogt smiled. The subconscious registers all sorts of things that the conscious mind is unaware of. You may have seen an ad, heard his name mentioned, something like that. So you think this is nothing? Likely, likely. He saw my discomfort and added, But if you'd be happier with tests, I really would. He sighed and typed briefly on his computer. All right, prepare yourself to be poked and prodded, young lady. The next several hours were a mix of being bored in waiting rooms and being bored in large, loud machines. No one showed me the results of any of the scans, but they also didn't seem particularly concerned by them. I started to think that Dr. Vogt was right, that it had been nothing more than a dream brought on by stress and Chinese food. I considered just leaving, but a tiny voice in the back of my mind said, 
what if that's not you saying that? So I stayed as the machines whirred and the nurses bustled and I became increasingly convinced that I was wasting my time. The final piece of testing regimen was a sleep study. I swapped out of my clothes for a hospital gown, let the technician attach a dozen wires to my face, and laid down to rest beneath the camera's watchful eyes. Between the tiring day and the stressful night previous, it wasn't long before I was fast asleep. When I awoke, the room was dark. I was annoyed at the wires on me, although I wasn't sure why. They weren't particularly bothersome, they just felt like an invasion somehow. I began plucking at the electrodes, peeling them off one by one. A voice came from the speaker in one of the monitors. Please leave those on. You're doing a sleep study, remember? I'm done with it, I said. Only it wasn't me talking. That thing, that other, had taken control again. So naturally and so seamlessly that I hadn't even realized it. I struggled to move my hands, my mouth, anything, but nothing responded. Just lay back down, cajoled the voice from the speaker. Another voice spoke in the background. Look at this, she's still asleep. The speaker cut off abruptly as the microphone switch was released. I watched helplessly as I removed the rest of the wires and walked to the door. To my surprise, and that of the thing inside me, the handle wouldn't turn. Unlock this, please. It jiggled the knob impatiently. The speaker came to life again. We'd really like to finish the sleep study. If you'd please just lay back down. No! It kicked the door. I want my clothes and I want to leave now. It'll only be... Let me out now or I'll start smashing your fancy machines. It snarled with my voice. I could feel its rising fear at being trapped and inside. I gloated. How do you like it? I thought, hoping that it could hear me. Not so nice when it's happening to you. The doctors are going to rip you out. I'll be free and you'll be stuck forever. Let me out, it insisted, kicking the door again. When there was no response, it turned and strode back toward the sleep monitoring machinery. The door opened moments later and it turned, forcing my mouth into a smile. Thank you. Two nurses hustled in, seizing me in a firm grip. Hey, what is this? Let me go. My body struggled and thrashed, but they held on tightly. This is for your own good, one told me. The other uncapped a needle and plunged it into my arm. You're not yourself right now. I know, I thought, even as my body shouted. You can't do this to me! I felt my consciousness start to fade, though I could feel my body still fighting. Lorazepram's not working, one of the nurses said. His voice sounded far away, and I wanted to tell him it is, but only on me. She can take another dose, said the other. Hit her with it again before we try the stronger stuff. If they put another needle into me, I never felt it. I was already asleep again. Time became a jumble. I woke at irregular intervals, sometimes in control of my body, sometimes not. It didn't matter much in either case as I was strapped to a hospital bed, cuffed at ankles and wrists. Sometimes I thanked the doctors for helping me. Other times I yelled, screamed, and threatened. I wasn't always sure whether it was me or the other speaking. We were both trapped now, both experiencing the same panic. It could have been either of us. The doctors made sympathetic noises, chucked charts and machines, and basically treated me like just another piece of furniture in the room. IVs in my arm kept me fed and drugged. A catheter kept me from needing to leave the bed. Waking and sleeping bled together until I lost all sense of what was a dream and what was real. 
And then finally one day I woke up, and everything was clear. Gone was the thick cotton wool of the drugs. Gone too were the restraints holding me to the bed. I looked around cautiously and saw Dr. Vogt smiling at me across the room. How are you feeling? he asked. Fine, I responded warily, then blinked. Better than fine, actually. I feel good. I raised and lowered my arms. They were weak, but I was pleased to see that they responded fully to my control with no resistance at all. We've gotten things under control, Dr. Vogt told me. I think it's safe to say that you're all alone in there now. I smiled back at him. I think you're right. Oh, this feels so much better. I'll let you get up in your own time. Your clothes are on the table. Just check out at the front desk when you leave. I'm writing you a script for clozapine. I'd like to see you back here in two weeks to confirm everything is going well, but I'm feeling confident. So am I, doctor. After he left, I got up and made my way carefully to the shower. I luxuriated in the feeling of the hot water washing over my body, cleaning away the sweat and stink that had accumulated. I washed my hair, combing out the tangles with my fingers, then brushed it carefully in the mirror until it was clean and vibrant as it had ever been. I wanted to catch Caden's eye at his next town hall, after all. The nurse gave me the script the doctor had left, which I threw away in the first trash can I passed outside. He might be worried about a repeat incident, but I could tell that the previous owner of this body was completely gone. This was mine now. Fully mine. And after I got Caden? I'd planned to transfer fully to him, to leverage his political goals to serve my own ambitions, but this body was nothing but a shell now. If I left, it would collapse. It seemed a waste. I could probably manage to split myself off, manage them both at once. Perhaps it was time to start a family. I hope you enjoyed The Traveler, as written by Micah Edwards and performed by Evil Idol 2020 contestant number 33, Bryn Seacard. Before we go, I'd like to thank you for joining us for tonight's episode of Chilling Tales for Dark Nights. I'd also like to invite you again to check out more narrative nightmares on my program, Horror Hill, available now on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, and wherever your favorite programs can be found, with three thrilling seasons to sink your teeth into, with all the tales performed by yours truly. Jason Hill. And if you drop by and dig what I do, please take a moment to leave me a five-star review and a comment, and let me know you heard about me here on Chilling Tales for Dark Nights. It would mean a lot to me. All of tonight's performances were featured in this year's 2020 Evil Idol Horror Voice Acting Competition, which is being hosted on our official Chilling Tales for Dark Nights YouTube channel as we speak and which will be running over the course of the next few months. If you enjoyed the performances tonight, visit our YouTube channel today and cast your vote on the entries for tonight's featured contestants and the other entries in the competition. Again, you can find Chilling Tales for Dark Nights and the Evil Idol competition on YouTube. Just search Chilling Tales for Dark Nights YouTube on any search engine 
or visit ChillingTalesForDarkNights.com and click the Evil Idol link on the navigation to see a current roster, contestant profiles, and links to all of the performers thus far. As always, we and the candidates appreciate your support. Also, as a reminder, don't forget to take a moment to stop by our iTunes page and leave Chilling Tales for Dark Nights a five-star review and a kind word, and follow us on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram, if you haven't already. And, of course, subscribe to us on YouTube, where you can find an archive of our work going back to 2012, and consider signing up as a patron at our website, ChillingTalesForDarkNights.com, to show your support and get all of our content ad-free. I'm your host, Jason Hill, and it's been a pleasure. Tune in again next week when we once again turn off the lights and turn on the dark. Sweet dreams, listener. Sweet dreams. <laughs> Thanks for joining us. You've been listening to Chilling Tales for Dark Nights, a production of Chilling Entertainment and a proud member of the Simply Scary Podcasts Network. Visit simplyscarypodcast.com today to learn more about our network and our other amazing storytelling programs. Tonight's program was hosted by yours truly, Steve Taylor. Selected stories have been adapted with the kind permission of their respective authors. Original music provided by Luke Hodgkinson and Jesse Cornett. Sound design and final mixing and mastering by executive producer and director Craig Groshek. Logo by Craig Groshek. Got a scary tale of your own that you'd like performed? We take submissions. Email it to us today at submissions at chillingtalesfordarknights.com to have your terrifying tome considered for production in a future episode of this show. If you enjoyed what you heard on tonight's program and are joining us on your favorite podcast app, subscribe to us to be sure you never miss an episode and leave us a five-star review and a comment. Your feedback means a lot to us. You can also follow Chilling Tales for Dark Nights and yours truly on Facebook to connect anytime and get the latest updates on this and other programs and my channel. If you're listening on the Chilling Tales for Dark Nights YouTube channel, do us a favor and hit the subscribe button and the bell notification icon for CTFDN as well to get more spooky tales from me and the crew each and every week. And don't forget to hit that thumbs up button to tell us how we're doing and leave a kind word or a request. And don't forget to visit us at ChillingTalesForDarkNights.com and consider supporting the team by becoming a patron. In addition to helping us out, you'll get exclusive access to our audio archive and ad-free downloads of all your favorite stories, including those you've heard on this program. We'll be back next week with more terrifying tales to keep you up all night. But that's all right. Who needs sleep anyway? <laughs> You can live out your MasterChef dreams when you find a professional on Angie to tackle your dream kitchen remodel. Connect with skilled professionals to get all your home projects done well. Inside to outside. Repairs to renovations. Get started on the Angie app or visit Angie.com today. You can do this when you Angie that. Angie has made it easier than ever to connect with skilled professionals to get all your jobs projects done well. 
If you own a home, you know how much work it can take. Whether it's everyday maintenance and repairs or making dream projects a reality, it can be hard just to know where to start. But now, all you need to do is Angie that and find a skilled local pro who will deliver the quality and expertise you need. Angie has over 20 years of home service experience, and they've combined it with new tools to simplify the whole process. Bring them your project online or with the Angie app, answer a few questions, and Angie can handle the rest from start to finish or help you compare quotes from multiple pros and connect instantly, which means you can take care of just about any home project in just a few taps. Because when it comes to getting the most out of your home, you can do this when you Angie that. Download the free Angie mobile app today or visit Angie.com. That's A-N-G-I dot com.